0: Hello everyone. My name is Xenia Makovsky. I'm a student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues at Dickinson College. Here with me today is Kevin Wagner, the Social Studies Program Chair for the Carl Area School District. Mr. Wagner, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, so just to start off from our panel discussion when we left off on Wednesday night, all three of you panelists touched in the discussion As part of the problem with critical race theory in the current culture wars in legislation is that so many people have a misunderstanding of what critical race theory is and is not. So just so that we're all on the same page and to clarify for listeners, could you please explain to us your understanding of what CRT is and is not?
1: So my main emphasis from our discussion the other evening was the focus on the last part of it. It is a theory. It is a theoretical construct, you know, so made by humans to try and explain how race has made an impact on our social institutions within the United States. And so those are kind of like the key pivotal words to understand that it is a social construct. It's a theory that's been put out there. And we're trying to show how does race impact whether it's our laws, our governmental systems, our support systems that are in place within the
0: United States. That's a great definition. You just talked about how it's about race, but I think part of the problem is that it's become kind of an umbrella term that encompasses much broader societal criticism on race, but also debates like Professor Oliverio brought up about LGBTQ legislation and climate change. So how has this become kind of an umbrella term that encompasses broader societal progressive curriculum?
1: Yeah, so it really has broadened to go beyond just the race issue. Sexism, you will see, is a word that's used in some of the legislation that's been moving around the states as a part of it. Florida is the perfect example, branching out into... The LGBTQ plus community, and now with the whole, I can't teach individuals K through third grade, anything that may have gay in it in as context, or you know, I have two dads and two moms. So it really has blossomed into, I think, a pushback of all things that some individuals or some groups view as what's quote unquote wrong with America from their perspective. And so it's, it's blossomed beyond just race uh, into other avenues.
0: The title of Wednesday's debate was, Who's Afraid of Critical Race Theory? So how exactly after that discussion on Wednesday do we answer this question? Who is afraid of critical race theory in America? And why are they so afri- afraid of admitting that American institutions are ingrained with bias and prejudice?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting way to phrase it. And it's not just white individuals uh, or Caucasians who are afraid of critical race theory. There are many African-Americans that are also raising concerns about it. And I think in my mind's eye, who's afraid of it is those individuals who feel like it leaves them at a disadvantage in society by them perceiving that they are being told they're inherently racist, or inherently sexist. And that's kind of that key word, inherently, which is not a component of of critical race theory in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't look at an individual, but that's how people are perceiving it. And many individuals who feel that it is incorrectly or inadequately changing the way we focus on, particularly the study of history and American history in general. Individuals who want to see our history as kind of that exceptionalist history. As I like to say, that city upon a hill, that we are the shining example of everyone and that people feel threatened by that, that it's, it's changing the direction of the way in which we viewed our history in the past.
0: That kind of segues perfectly into my next question, because you mentioned in the Clark Forum panel that you just heard about CRT in 2019, and since learning about it, and especially I feel like in the past year, as it's become more sensationalized in the media, has this changed your approach to teaching U.S. history? A student asked a question on Wednesday night regarding the College Board's curriculum, But are you now more aware of the the curriculum and guidelines that you have to be following?
1: I mean, I've always been um, an advocate for knowing what's out there and what's part of it, whether it be coming down from our National Council of Social Studies. There's been a lot out there with like the, what's called the C3 Framework, College Career Civic Readiness Program. So knowing what points of view are out there For me personally, I don't think it's changed the way I've taught history, because I've always been very adamant that all sides of the story should be brought to the table. Uh, And as I mentioned in my talk, that I want students to be able to make up their own minds of where they feel this fits in society, in their own frame of reference, in their mindset. And if that differs from my perspective, I'm okay with that. And I'm comfortable with that. I am not trying to get them to move in one direction or another, unless I see that it's a, you know, like a historically inaccurate piece of information, like a date or, or something that actually did cause something to happen. I mean, I've become aware of it the past two or three years, but it hasn't impacted the way I teach.
0: So, I personally was not a student in your AP U.S. History class, but I was in your classroom almost every single day at AP U.S. History, so I was aware of some of the curriculum and conversations and simulations that you had going on in your class. Would you be able to tell listeners a little bit about some of the projects that you've implemented in your classroom to teach students a more complex perspective on U.S. History in regards to slavery and the Civil War and racism?
1: Yeah, one of the starting ones that really hits home for students is is a kind of a deep dive into looking at Bacon's Rebellion that happens in 1676, 77, 100 years before the Declaration of Independence. And we have some wonderful firsthand accounts from, from Bacon himself, who leads the rebellion. There are a few bits and pieces from a few indentured servants who are African-American Or African at that point. And then we have a lot of upper class individuals who are part of the legislature, as well as the appointed governor. And so, one of the things we do is we look at all four of these perspectives. What are their motivations? What are their reasons for doing what they're doing? Trying to get the students to see this is where it kind of begins. This is where that concept of race begins to be constructed. This is where you see the word white showing up in colonial documents when you never saw them prior to the 1670s. Um, And they quickly start to see that pushback from upper class and the governor is showing them that here's this white guy who is part of the aristocracy, who is willing to join forces with Africans to push back against the establishment at that point. And it's, All of a sudden they realize that, wait, we've got to change that narrative because we can't have this happening. And so how can we bring all the lower class, if you will, white individuals to our side and see it from our point of view so that we're all together against this other group of people? And so all of a sudden you begin to see this race construct develop and the idea of white versus black, Mm -hmm. inferior versus superior. So that's one of the starting points I love to use because all four sides are being told and they can kind of make up their mind very quickly as to where this argument's going. I do a lot more than when we get into the 1800s. Love to use my guy, Thomas Jefferson, um, because he's such a dichotomy. Uh, He really brings that human spirit because on one hand he says this, but on the other hand, he says something else. Looking at... Here's a guy that owns over 100, almost 200 people, but at the same time writes a a document known as the Northwest Ordinance that bans slavery in an entire section of the country that's just starting to be formed. How is he doing that, but living this life? And how do we put those two in conversation with each other? And then as we move into like the 1830s and 40s, looking at how the enslaved people are starting to push back as well, and not just the ones that everybody knows, not just looking at like Frederick Douglass and the big ones. One of the things I like them to do is analyze runaway slave ads in the classroom. Because, and not from the perspective of why is the plantation owner writing this, but the amount of detail you get in one of those narratives, like they're describing what they're wearing, how hardworking they are, their mentality level. And so you can really start to put together It's like They're putting that much detail in the slavery ads for runaways. How can you not see them as human beings? Why are they still considered property? Because all these traits you're listing in this ad to find my slave are human qualities and characteristics. So those are the types of things, just, you know, those three examples really are how do I get students to do really deep dives into those topics and leave it very open-ended. Let them kind of decide for themselves. And I always like to pose like a very open-ended question at the end then that they respond to. So now that you know all of this, what perspective do you have about that time period? Has it changed? Has it stayed the same? And why do you feel one way or the other? Those are are just some examples.
0: And I think those are really great interactive ways to start conversations do you feel like students before this lesson do you think that they're aware of some of these contradictions or history or do you think that this is like the first time that has been introduced to them
1: some of them come with a kind of a basic understanding they know it's there and that they've heard it i think they're very shocked to to learn the nuances of how it happened because one of the things I always like to say is what you read in the textbook is what happens kind of in, in kind of a person's mind. Their actions speak to what they're thinking and what they want to do. But what we're really trying to figure out is what's happening in their heart. Why are they doing what they're doing? What's their emotional aspect? And that is a new aspect for students, I think, to try and tackle. And it's, it's, it's very nuanced and it's hard to get at. And helping them to kind of read between the lines of a a document. And so, okay, even though they've said this on paper, what's kind of, what's the motivation behind it? How do we get into their mindset? And many times it has to be a little bit speculative, certainly. But I, I do think the neatest thing that happens is, you know, you've kind of shocked them into a new way of perceiving something is when the conversation carries outside the classroom door. And so the bell rings, they leave your classroom and they're still talking about it in the hallway or a teacher will send you an email at the end of the day. It's like, they couldn't stop talking about like what you were doing in your classroom. What was going on in there? That's the greatest attribute. So I think it certainly is pushing them to think in new ways.
0: As the social studies department head, I'm sure that your department's had extensive discussions about CRT and ways to incorporate more diverse narratives of marginalized people into your social studies classes. What advice would you give to other educators, perhaps in other districts, or even within your own district, about how to incorporate heavy topics on racism and link them to current racial inequalities that we're seeing in the country?
1: I would kind of offer two things to think about as you move forward. One is, Bring together the group of educators to really look at the curriculum documents that drive what you are teaching. They don't usually tell us how to teach it, but what they're teaching. And look to see if it truly is bringing in the diverse voices that need to be part of the conversation. Is it leaving out voices that you normally would not hear? Is it very Eurocentric or Caucasian-centered? And if it is, how do we bring in the other voices? How do they become part of that conversation? And the second thing I would I would recommend is one of the caveats, and I think I mentioned in our talk on Wednesday evening and discussion was how can you create what I call a brave space in your classroom? Not a safe space, because I don't think safe spaces truly exist in a world. You're always going to get pushback from people. But how do you create a brave space? And parameters with your students, so that they know every single person's point of view is valid, and every point of view is willing to be heard, even when we will not agree with it. And there will be times when you have to agree to disagree. But how do you create that in your classroom? And have that conversation with students. They're very willing, I think, many times to provide different avenues or parameters that they think should be part of that, whether you're having a Socratic discussion or or just a, a debate. I try to not use the word debate. That might be another third caveat for educators. To me, when you use the word debate in your classroom, it is a preconceived idea that there will be a winner and a loser at the end of the class period. We're here to have a discussion, and that discussion means that we are actively listening to each other and formulating our own opinions. So maybe move, try to move away from having a debate and having a discussion.
0: That's a really good point. So you're a member of the Pennsylvania Council for Social Studies and the Middle States Council for Social Studies and also the Pennsylvania Teachers Advisory Board. I mean, you're just a little bit busy. How are <laughs> these councils, are they giving teachers any advice to deal with curriculum dis- Discussions. We're not going to use the word debate. Is there any general feeling from educators in this group in regard to how you teach what you call on Wednesday night, hard history?
1: Yeah, it's been, it's been a little hard for organizations like that to come out with public statements. Middle States Council has not, to my knowledge, Pennsylvania Council has not. The Teachers Advisory Board has been so focused right now on the trauma informed classroom that their mindset has all been focused on that. Most of the position statements, if you will, that I've seen come out right now have been really the bigger overarching organizations. So, the National Council of Social Studies does have a position statement, the American Historical Association has come out with one. They've been the most vocal against critical race theory. Um, and the Organization of American Historians. So it seems to be the bigger national organizations have really come out. And the American Historical Association, I mean, they seem to come out with a position statement on just about every single state piece of legislation. And, And not just legislation, I've seen they've come out with some statements for individual school districts even to really push back on it. So they're out there. But I think the more state level or like middle states um, is a little more cautious and, and kind of tend to jump on board with more national positions because they, they know it's a little bit more nuanced when you get down to more of a local state level issue. Yeah. So there hasn't been a lot of conversations. It hasn't come up in being a board member on middle states. It hasn't come up in our discussion yet. But it's also kind of a unique situation. I think the East Coast has been a little late to come on to the, the CRT argument. It seems to have been focused more on South and, and Central United States. So that may change in the coming months.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So it's, it just hasn't hit Pennsylvania, this, this region yet.
1: Yeah, and it all depends on where you live. I mean, it was fascinating to hear that on Wednesday evening in our discussion, like I have not received a lot of pushback from our community and, and parents and individuals. It's been very sporadic. One, one here, you know, another one here, not much at all. In fact, there was an article that the Sentinel worked on, the editor of the Sentinel worked on, and I was, I was a part of that on CRT. I got five emails, and ironically, all five of them were from individuals who don't even live in the Carlisle School District. So that said something to me, I think. But then you go right next door to the county right next door to us, and it's the complete opposite. So geography plays a lot into that, I think, as well.
0: I think we both can agree that it's a positive thing when community members and parents and students attend school board meetings and are active and aware of school district policies and agenda but the crowds we've seen gathering at school board meetings in some districts, even in the South, or like you just said in the county right next to us, have just become inappropriate and disrespectful. So is there any relationship between CRT censorship and kind of this feeling of undermining public education?
1: Yeah, I I think the biggest thing I take away from this is, as an educator, I think we feel like we've lost our value in society and our appreciation. The vast majority of teachers are in the position they are because they have a bachelor's degree in their subject field. The vast majority of them will also have a master's in their subject field. And I always liken it to you're not going to walk into your primary care physician and tell your doctor how to operate on your cancer. And so why do we feel it's vastly appropriate to walk in and tell a teacher, not necessarily what to teach, but how to teach something like slavery or racism in America? They're professionals. They've spent their lifetime learning this. Can we at least respect them enough to give them that that open ability? And there's a reason why we call it public education. Public simply should mean that we are looking at all viewpoints and all avenues of discussion and leave them open for letting the students decide. Whether you agree or disagree, the final decision rests in your individual person.
0: Is there anything else that you would like listeners to be aware of when it comes to CRT or public education or valuing our teachers?
1: You know, the biggest thing is feel free to reach out. I think teachers are very open-minded and and we do welcome to have this discussion with parents, especially at the high school level. I think it does get lost. Uh, We're very active in our sons and daughters at kindergarten through elementary school and pretty much through middle school. And then something happens when they hit high school. So feel free to reach out, you know, give a call or send an email. I'm always willing to have this discussion and hear points of view and ways that we can help our students to get better at what they they need to be in terms of critical thinking skills. So don't be afraid to reach out. And most importantly, be willing to have those brave conversations and really listen to each other's points of view. You know, The, the biggest thing I walked away with on, on Wednesday night was, I've done a lot about reading into critical race theory, is take some time to really study what it is and the history of how it developed you may be surprised it's not the CRT that's in these pieces of legislation and law and what many politicians are saying it is. And if you really go to the root of the 50s and 60s and when it develops, you might be surprised at what it really does mean. And know that in the end, there is no high school anywhere in the United States that teaches critical race theory. It It usually never shows up until you get to graduate school.
0: That's some great advice. That concludes today's interview. So if you're interested in hearing more about CRT, then you can check out the Clark Forum's website and also our YouTube page, where there's a recording of Wednesday night's panel discussions. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mr. Wagner. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Appreciate it.